Hello, it's the 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel that we're studying today on Search for Truth. Search for Truth, of course, your Bible study program with your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston. I'm really delighted that you can join us because it's chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel today and we approach it with due reverence and awe as Mark recounts what happened when Jesus' time had come and he finally fulfilled what was written about him aforetime in the scriptures. Brian's title for today's study is The King Who Stumbled to His Throne. Sounds a bit strange. Is that right, Brian? Yes, thanks, John. Yes, the king who stumbled to his throne. In our review of the life of Jesus... As given us in Mark's Gospel, we come to the day Jesus was crucified. Here we find the more undignified and harsh the treatment they inflict on him, the more compelling is his dignified response. Verse 1 of Mark 15. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Jesus' quiet composure, even his silence at times, amazed the governor, as it had the high priest earlier. Pilate, the Roman governor, asked a similar question to one we've heard the high priest ask previously. The high priest had asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? We've said before that the meaning of Christ is the Anointed One in the sense of God's Anointed King. The royal identity of Jesus as King is something we trace right throughout this section of the Gospel. For example, verse 6, Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate asked them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Twice, again, Mark records Pilate describing Jesus as the king of the Jews. In addition, we have introduced to us the idea of Jesus, the man who is innocent of all charges, being substituted effectively for a man who was truly guilty, even Barabbas. Now, verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail! King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. 
After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Again, in sarcastic mockery now, Jesus is addressed as the King of the Jews. Picking up on this theme that we've detected, I'd like to insert here an imaginary account of a later recollection Pilate is imagined to have had of the events of the day of Jesus' crucifixion. The clerk began reading the absurd list of charges, the priestly delegations punctuating these with the palm rubbings, the beard strokings, the eye rollings and the pious gutturals, by now which I had learned to ignore, but I more felt it, Gaius, than heard it. I questioned him mechanically, and he answered very little, but what he said, and the way he said it, it was as if his level gaze had pulled up my naked soul right up into my eyes and was probing me there, and a voice kept saying in my ears, why, you're on trial, Pilate. I appealed to the crowd, hoping they would be his sympathisers, but the high priest had stationed agitators to whip up the beasts that cry for blood. And you know how it is in this town here. Any citizen loves the blood of another person just after breakfast and screams for another's blood. I had him beaten, Gaius, a thorough barracks room beating. I'm still not sure why. To appease the crowd, I guess. Well, it didn't work, Gaius. The crowd roared like some slavering beast when I brought him back. If only you could have watched him. They had thrown some rags of mock purple over his bleeding shoulders. They jammed a chaplet of thorns down on his forehead, and it fitted. It all fitted, Gaius. He stood there watching them from my balcony, swaying from weakness by now. But royal, I tell you. Not just pain, but pity shining from his eyes. And I kept thinking, somehow, this is monstrous. This is upside down. That purple is real. That crown is real. And somehow these animal noises the crowd is shrieking should be praise. And then the high priest played his masterstroke on me. He announced there in public that this Jesus claimed a crown, and that was treason to Caesar. And the guards began to glance at one another quickly, and that mob of spineless fools began to shout, Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar! And Gaius, I knew I was beaten. I gave the order. I couldn't look at him. We stress again, that was only someone's imagination. But if Pilate did feel that he was on trial that day, it would have been accurate. And it's the same for all of us as we read this. Whether or not we actually believe the claims of Christ the King is what will finally judge us. And all who don't believe are judged already. Returning to the biblical text of Mark's Gospel now at verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from his cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. The reference to the inscription and the sneer of the priests and scribes continue the single thread we're tracing of Jesus' kingship, which is being emphasised by Mark at this point. Now verse 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so we arrive at the third confession of Jesus as the Son of God. At the beginning of our remarks on this gospel, we said this whole gospel was framed and divided by three similar confessions at its beginning, middle and end. You'll recall our comment that Jesus knew all along the timing of his death. We've remarked how the details of his entry to Jerusalem and of the venue for the Last Supper meal were all under his control. Even when the conspirators were saying, not at the feast, Jesus knew that was indeed the appointed hour. Why? Because it was Passover time. It was the time for the ultimate sacrifice, of which the annual ritual had only ever been a pointer. By dying, Jesus drank the cup of judgment from his father's hand, the cup he so much dreaded as he entered Gethsemane's garden. The judgment of those three supernaturally darkened hours, marked by the equally supernatural ripping of the temple curtain, was suffered by one whose royal dignity was never in question, but finally affirmed by the Roman centurion, Jesus, our royal substitute, Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, paid there on the cross the price of our human rebellion so that the judgment due to us might forever pass over us instead. Oh, oh, oh.
for your talk and there's a book I remind you as usual which contains all the transcripts of the talks in this series and it's available yours for the asking if you'd like a copy just write in and ask for Take Your Marks Gospel and you can do this by email or by post here's our address Search for Truth, Hayes Press The Barn, Flaxlands Royal Wooten Bassett Swindon SN48DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So many, many thanks for your company today. It's been great to have you with us, and I hope you found the talk beneficial. So please join us again next week if you can for the final study and teaching from Mark's Gospel before we begin a new series. So until then, it's cheerio and very best wishes from Brian, David and me, John. And may God richly bless you. Master,